Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm happy to be in the studio today with a local lady. Her name is Lori Wax, and Lori is the president and founding member of Crossledge Investments. Thank you so much for being here, Lori. A pleasure to join you. I'd love to, to start out learning um, a little bit about your backstory and your years growing up in Long Island. So talk about those years a little bit about your family and, and some of the activities you were involved in. Sure. I grew up in a bit of a financial family. My dad was one of those people who fell in love with the stock market at an early age growing up in the Bronx and went to the library on weekends to read the Wall Street Journal. And so I was always brought up with that as a backdrop in my household. Um, you know, was taught to read the Wall Street Journal at an early age and kind of remember a fourth or fifth grade stock picking contest that I found <laughs> very interesting. So. <laughs> That's funny. That reminds me, my father-in-law used to, to have a little running joke with my kids about the stock market, about buying low and selling high. They had to repeat it over and over again. Yep. Four words to live by. Yeah. yeah. And, and how about your mom? Did she work outside the house? She didn't when I was growing up. After I left for school, she went back to work and became a social worker. Okay. And brothers and sisters, did I, you have? Yes. An older brother by two years. And we were we did a lot of the same activities growing up. And he went on to a career in finance as well. He did. Okay. Um, where did you go to high school? Went to Syosset High School, which is a big public school on Long Island, and it had about 500 people in its graduating class. Okay. That's not so big, I guess. That's about... I thought it was a great size. It was really big enough that you could find a good group of people that were similar enough to yourself and but you know have some varied interests and really explore a lot of different clubs. I was very active in student government. I was a cheerleader and um, involved with the yearbook as well. Okay. Excuse me. So um, after high school, you went to Penn. You went to Wharton here in Philadelphia. And was your intention always to go into finance? Was that your sole interest? Well, I I did go through Wharton. So I did have business on my mind from a pretty early age. Um, I can't say I was completely sure what area of business and finance I was going to end up in. I was always a very strong math student. So that was at a backdrop that I had a strong analytical mind with math supporting that. And I also always had a very strong interest in fashion. So as I worked my way through Wharton and saw that there would be this interesting combination of my skill sets by following the consumer sector, that seemed to be a very logical path for me. Okay. So that didn't come later. That was really from from the get-go, the, the consumer and retail um, part of finance for you? Well, I graduated in 90, and in 92, I started as a consumer analyst. So my first job out of Penn was not specifically in this field. I went to work at Goldman Sachs. I was recruited through one of their two-year training programs, and I was in their equity risk arbitrage department. So pretty different. It really looks at mergers and acquisitions and various other inefficiencies in the markets, like different levels of voting stock and pitting one against the other. Um, So but really taught me a lot about how markets worked and how things got traded and how to analyze different businesses 
you know, from a variety of different metrics. Once you get into a certain space, like the consumer space or technology, you kind of know the tools that you want to use to analyze the companies in that space. Working at Goldman really gave me a much broader view to be able to then drill down and analyze. Now, those years working at Goldman Sachs, was was it were there challenges? Was it difficult for you working as a woman there and in that industry? I nothing that I really picked up on at the time. Again, I was only there for two years. It was right out of college. The training class that I went through, which was largely for the investment banking division, they did a very good job of having a lot of women in the class. I don't remember if it was exactly 50-50, but it certainly felt that way. When I went to my specific department, equity risk arbitrage, I was the only woman in that group, but it was a pretty small group, and I never felt it as a gating factor. I, I just, I never felt any sort of level that I couldn't participate in by being a woman. Yeah, that, that's good because, you know, we talk about that a lot in here. Um, you know, the, the industries that are historically male-dominated, what are those challenges for women? And I think it's important um, today, specifically for young girls, that they, they're encouraged to go into, you know, the math and the sciences. So, But you didn't feel any type of... Um, I don't know, you know, extra challenges. I didn't. And again, if you go to my background, which was always growing up and feeling strong in math and science. So I it just it never dawned on me and having the financial family and being at Wharton at the time. Again, don't know the exact split, but I had plenty of friends that were women in my classes, in the finance classes. So it just it wasn't as much of a part of the conversation nationally, I don't think, at that point in right. time, at least that I was aware of. And it really was not a part of my thought process. Yeah, which is terrific. You were just doing your thing and not even worrying about that. Exactly. Um, one of the things we talked about before the show started was this idea of trying to educate children from the get-go about money and investing and saving. And I think we both agreed that, you know, why it hasn't been done um, is is a wonder. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why you think it's important to kind of, get, you know, not just teach the children about math, um, but to actually start to teach them about money and how they need to save and invest and plan. It's it's such a critical part of all of our grown-up everyday existence that it, it is mind-boggling. And I know that we hear more and more about financial literacy programs going into, say, some inner city areas. I, I'm familiar with some programs but I really don't hear much about it in a mainstream way. And again, having always grown up around this, I, uh, I continue to be fascinated by how few of my friends have taken any sort of um, classes or really done a lot on their own to understand the personal investing side of things. And we know how important it is there are kind of a few key inputs to how you're going to be able to do well financially through the years. And one important piece of it is investments and that skill that comes with being able to be disciplined and it's your first job and it's exciting and you have money for the first time and let's see what I can go and buy. Let's see what you could go and save and watch it start to grow. And part of it could be with this younger generation. They have not been around a strong stock market to say the least. And so they were not getting the gratification that came from saving money and watching it compound at 12 or 15% and really start to build your nest egg. So I could see this younger generation really becoming, you know, disenchanted with the stock market and saying, why would I want to save when I, I'm really not certain? However, 
if we take a step back, we certainly know over time that the stock market is a very good place to have your investments. And having come off of the difficult period that we did, the last few years, we saw very strong levels of return and people that stayed in there would have really seen their assets go up quite significantly. Um, but how about just saving for the nest egg? You know, not always necessarily um, for investing or kind of taking risks with your money, but just having something to fall back on, I think, is important as well. Well, we certainly saw that as we went through the recession and how long people were unemployed, that it is very important to have a six-month nest egg. But one thing that I will take in a little different direction is part of saving really should be investing and investing responsibly because we know the rates that you get by putting money in money market funds. It's kind of tantamount to sticking it in your mattress. And so it is really important to have a well-diversified portfolio and really try to, by, by in doing so, ensure that you will be compounding your money at above, um, you know, a half a percent if you're lucky in a money market fund nowadays. Right. And I guess if you can, if you can grow it, why why would you not? Why would you have it sitting, you know, not doing anything if there are different opportunities and ways to, to grow that? But as you point out, you dif- have to have different buckets. So right. the rainy day bucket of I lost my job and this is a tough job environment and I need to really be able to weather this storm, absolutely have that in as riskless a an asset class as you can. Um, I'm I, another thing I mentioned to you. My a good friend of mine forwarded me an article, knowing you were going to be in here today, and it talked about millennials. And uh, there's a gentleman. He's an advisor and an author. His name is William Bernstein, and he wrote an article that really simplified what people need to do with their money. But he was gearing it towards the millennials. And his take was that you really, if you simply take fifteen percent of your annual income starting at the age of 25 and put it only in three areas, whether it's a 401k, your IRA, or or a mutual fund, that's all you need to do and it will grow and you will eventually be a millionaire. Does that make sense to you? Well, and I think that that's the point that I was making, which is on the one hand, people become risk averse, especially given the choppy times that is still scarring in most people's memory, But the only way to grow your assets and to be able, I don't want to say the only way, there are ways to make a wonderful wage living and as well as historically, people's houses have been turned into great nest eggs for them as well. But certainly a very important way is to have a pretty simple um, investment diversified strategy, um, not overly complicated, as you mentioned. You can do it through mutual funds. and just watch it compound over time. Again, long-term averages don't lie. And if you start when you're young at 25, I think that would be a great exercise for everybody to do, to just play around with a compounding calculator, which is something that I do for kicks in my spare time. But I'm sure there are some great programs that people can just go online. And you see investing a dollar, and then you compound it. You can play around at 8% over 50 years You'll be amazed at how you see that dollar grow, and hopefully that gets people in the mindset. Something I do want to point out, though, that is different about the millennials is that they are much more likely to change jobs and to not necessarily go for the bigger, safer corporate environments, which haven't turned out to be as safe. And Mm -hmm. they're much more entrepreneurial group Mm -hmm. with that 
often doesn't come the great benefits of having a strong 401k program and the match that goes with it. And that has just been a great wealth generator for people of my generation, which is you look up 20 years later and you've really developed a nice retirement plan. So I think it is that much more important for the millennials to really start at a young age figuring out on their own to make sure that they do their own program if they're not at a bigger employer. Right, right. There's a lot of variables, I guess. I'm curious to know what types of conversations you have with your own children about money. I have two very different children. Um, My son is very much interested in the stock market. He finds it fascinating to hear about my latest company's reports and to Um, see how the stock reacted. And he knows if I come home and I'm a little bit sad that it was probably a tough day (laughs) in the market. So he's very in tune with it. And he certainly likes nice things, but he understands that, you know, hard work and, um, you know, will, will, and having to prioritize things are good lessons to know. And how old is he? He is 16. 16. Okay. My daughter is, I believe, somebody who will ask me to guide her finances through life. (laughs) And she knows that she has, I think, a pretty good mom to do that. But she has not been all that interested in finance. And she seems to be pursuing more of a career in the humanities and in really peacemaking initiatives. She loves to write. She's won awards for her playwriting. So very different skill set. And she's going to Yale next year? She is. That's very exciting. And it's interesting. She maybe she has a little bit of your mom in her. Um, I do think, you know, these children are amalgams and she has always been very close with my mom and has always felt this extra level of empathy that was always beyond her years. So it's very rewarding to see her get up there and really be able to implement some of the things that she's always felt. Well, and that's what, and we need those people. We need the, we need the finance people and we need the humanitarians as well. Absolutely. Um, So in, in 1997, you were vice president at Delaware um, Investments and you were um, managing a lot of money there, right? Uh, four is it four billion dollars? I'm one, that's stressful. That's a lot of pressure, right? I wonder how you managed your stress level when you were at that job. Right. Well, I do want to mention I was part of a team that managed that four right. billion dollars, so yes. it didn't all Not, fall right. on me. But it's still a lot of money, and yes, certainly this is a manic business. And when you get a stock right, and I. I follow, I tend to focus on small cap companies. So when you can find it early and watch it grow, it's incredibly rewarding. But the market, especially um, it's accelerated with this high frequency trading, can really magnify even small errors for growth companies. So these companies have a relatively high multiple and there isn't a lot of margin for error. And when something goes a little bit off track, the stock can easily be down 20% in one day. And Yes, I. there are many nights where I go to sleep and I'm having a hard time because I know that I have two companies reporting the next morning and I'm, and I'm nervous about it. So it is a stressful job. I really enjoyed several of my coworkers at Delaware Investments, um, two of whom I work with now at my own fund. And it's just when we were setting up our own fund, the critical importance of being with people who you completely trust and who don't second guess one another and just have lived through different cycles of the market is so very important. And then, you know, in terms of managing my stress, again, having grown up with a dad 
who lived with this and who certainly, you know, had stomach problems through the years with it. I I was as aware as one could be of trying to say, make sure that you keep a healthy outside look at these things. And so I've always made sure that I've exercised kind of five mornings a week just to keep that stamina and strength and endorphins. So keep that happy part of my brain going. And having raised children for, you know, the past 18 years continues to give you that outside perspective. And I did a good portion of them from the time they were five and seven. I was raising them on my own. Their dad lives nearby, but they were with me most of the time. So no matter how tumultuous a day in the market, you get home and you have a tremendous focus on your children. And so a lot of different things have helped me try to maintain some um, equal um, pose in my life. Right. Well, and just realistic, I guess, you know, the further along you go, the more you see that everything is cyclical. And so that, you know, when things go down, they always come back up. So it's very easy to sit here with you in a radio studio and feel that way. But there's no question (laughs) when you're going through it, you can wonder how you got so dumb so fast when you're going through not just a tough market, but as you discuss, the market rotates in terms of its flavor of the month or of the quarter of the year. And so when consumer growth stocks are not doing well, and it's been a particularly difficult year, year to date, the consumer discretionary space is was the only down sector in all of the market. So we know how this will pass. And there are a variety of reasons why it was a tough first quarter for the consumer space. But it's still pretty tough to uh, feel great about things when you're underperforming. And you know it will pass, but boy, it's challenging to get through at those moments. Yeah. Um, tell me what, what a typical day is like for you at Cross um, Ledge Investments. What do you, what do you, you know, for people that aren't in that field, what do you go into the office or do you have an office? I'm assuming. I do. You do. In and Center you City. Go, yep. In Center City. And you go in and, and what? What is your day? What are the tasks that you do throughout the day? So before I even get in, I usually wake up to several hundred emails. Wow. <laughs> and they are that all, would make that would paralyze me, I think. It I say the toughest part of the job is being able to sift through the data, the overwhelming data and find the important nuggets. Wow. So I will quickly, kind of even before I get out of bed, scan through my emails see what looks like real actionable, important news. And I will forward it up to one of my coworkers who co-covers the consumer space with me, Marshall Bassett, and we'll quickly have some conversations via email about what do we really need to be doing before we even get in the car or in his case on the train to get into the office. Um, Once we get into the office, a lot of it is continuing to go through the research. We're in earnings season now, so we're listening to conference calls And we're having ad hoc meetings throughout the day to figure out what needs to be fine-tuned in the portfolio. So that's kind of the active management side. Um, I certainly have a bit of a media presence as well. Mm -hmm. So there are times that I am preparing to go on TV or to do some radio. So that's another piece of the business. We have our largest investor is a group out of New York called James Alpha. And we do a once a month conference call with them. So when we get around that call, I'm usually just preparing extra little tidbits on the consumer space and what worked for us and didn't work for us in our portfolio that past month. Okay. We'll talk a little bit more about that. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back in the studio with Lori Wax, president and founding member of Cross Ledge Investments. 
It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of life. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized 
its success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. Uh, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Lori Wax. Uh, Lori is a local Philadelphia lady, and she is also president and founding member of Cross Ledge Investments. So, the f- beginning of the program, we were talking um, all about finance and money and what's happening out there. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your one of the things that you do do. I asked what your tasks are every day is um, television appearances, and you're a contributor and a commentator, I guess. Um, what 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 does that do for your business, um, for your firm, um, doing those television appearances? It's interesting. It has always fallen in that intangible, we're not sure, but it's probably something good. And we know when I go on TV, you can immediately see hits to the website go up dramatically. I guess most people every day aren't just walking around and logging onto Crossledge Investments. But, you know, we'll get hundreds of hits when I go on some sort of national TV. And... From there, um, I can't say people then click through to engage with the firm, but I think it gets on people's radar. It has always, I feel, really helped with my relationships with the CEOs of various companies because they know when I'm behind a company, I'll be a great cheerleader and I'll go out there and I'll talk about their stock when I'm really excited about it. So even when we started Crossledge, we were a little bit concerned that we're a much smaller company and when we still have access to these various companies and be able to meet with them and be able to speak with their executives. And it's an incredibly important part of our um, business model because we're fundamental analysts. And so we really want to be able to meet with companies and stay on top of things. I think that the media really helps for something like that as well. And I think when other potential investors are doing due diligence, I think that when you read on a piece of paper that this person's been following an industry for 20 plus years, that sounds neat. And then when you see that they're a nationally recognized analyst in that sector, I think that that gives some additional credibility as yeah. well. Well, not only that, I think it's wonderful to put a face to the name. And then when you're out there speaking intelligently about um, a certain area, that shows more than, as you said, just reading something on paper. Yep. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yep. Um, one of the organizations you're involved in is the Trustees Council for Penn Women. What types of things do you do with that organization? It is a really wonderful networking group for women who've graduated from Penn. 
and it started 27 years ago. It was the first group of its kind. Uh, it was actually started by very senior person at Credit Suisse First Boston, a male at the time who's the CEO. He had graduated from Penn, and he noticed that there were not a whole lot of women who had a say on the boards of overseers at Penn at the time. And understanding that there are a lot of inputs that go into getting a board seat, he said, if collectively we bring together a group of successful women, we can make sure that women are having a say on important matters across Penn's campus. So that was when it was founded. And the guiding principles are still very much the same. It's to make sure that a variety of women's issues, whether it's students or faculty and tenure and daycare for faculty members, that they're getting a continued spotlight shown upon the areas that really need to be discussed at the university. And around that, it has twice a year conferences on campus. And there are themes to the various conferences. And that's just the time not only to learn through whatever the topic is of the conference, but also to really network with a wonderful group of successful women. And It is one of those interesting things as I kind of get up there in my career and look back, it's something that isn't really nearly as readable to uh, nearly as readily available to women as it is to men. And it's not anybody's fault. It's just by sheer numbers of how many women have dropped out of the workforce as years go by. And so to be able to have friends in senior positions at J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, they were really helpful for me in my early years with the fund. And that's something that was so important to me as an entrepreneur that I wasn't nearly as important when I was at a big organization. Right. There's a lot of things going on, um, initiatives and networking groups, and lots of things are happening around the world for women to kind of support and help. And I'm wondering what you feel is the most critical component of that. In other words, there's things that educate women. Um, there's there's networking, you know, to kind of connect women. What do you think is the most critical um, piece that we need to focus on to kind of help women move more into board positions and, and to some of the higher positions within corporations? I think it comes back to bringing these women together in a formal networking sense to make sure that connections and introductions and being able to help one another really starts to take place in a multiplier effect. And we know that guys have just done this throughout the years and there are more of them. And there's a lot of business that takes place outside of the boardroom per se, or outside of the office. And you know, as we spoke about earlier, how did I get some of my balance and how did I make this a less stressful career? As I said, I got home and there was tremendous focus on my children. And so I see with my husband the tremendous amount of networking that he's doing after hours. And we live in different cities and so it doesn't affect my life. And it's wonderful that he does that. And he's so skilled at it. And he makes incredible relationships that are important for him throughout his work career it's tougher for women to do that on a day-to-day basis. So that's why I think these networking groups that they're springing up are so important. And, you know, great shout outs to Cheryl Sandberg for starting her lead-in circles, certainly what Sally Krawcheck is doing. So I hope that this continues to be a growing trend. Yeah, I think it will. It's It just seems to be multiplying. Um, for the listeners, we should mention, mention um, your husband is Ali Velshi, and he has his own show on Al Jazeera television in New York. And people are probably wondering why 
why why are they living separately? He's in New York doing his thing, and you're here. Um, talk about how you met, and and um, you know how the how the uh, relationship has developed over the years to how it is today. Sure, it was about eleven years ago when I went to the head of corporate communications at Delaware Investments and said, you know, I've been watching the various financial networks and. I think I'm ready. I think I could go on there and represent Delaware Investments and speak about the consumer sector and stocks that I like. And he said, that's fantastic. We'll media train you. I have you written down. And, you know, we'll make sure that this happens over the next few months. Sitting in my, actually waiting to make a client presentation a few weeks later, and I get an email from him that there was a slot for a portfolio manager the next day on CNN FN, which was their financial network at the time, to go on and talk about a few stocks that I liked. Could I do it? And there I was. I was in Connecticut about to make a presentation. I didn't have any other research on me, but... How old were you at that time? Eleven years ago, so we can leave that up to everyone's <laughs> okay. imagination. Yeah. I was, you are a young kid. I was 34 at the time. That's a young kid to me. I said, you know what? Let's go for it. Um, We never know when life presents us with these opportunities, and why not give it a shot? So the next day, I went over to the TV studio in Philadelphia with the head of corporate communications and went, and I did. It was a five-minute hit, and it was remotely, so I could not see the person that I was on TV with. But he sounded like a lot of fun. <laughs> you liked his voice. And after the hit, the corporate communications person from Delaware said, you know, Nice job. Sorry we didn't get a chance to media train you. You know, we'll continue to do that. And, you know, I'd give you a six or seven out of ten. I said, okay, that sounds good. And the very next day, I got a call from CNN FN. They said, we thought you were terrific. We want you on once a month. So now I was absolutely thrilled that I thought, maybe I'm a natural at this. And while I, I have been on many other networks, so I don't think it was purely ulterior motives that drove that decision, um, you know, found out down the road that my future husband, you know, certainly had an extra eye out for thinking that I did a really good job and he'd oh. like to have me on again. Oh. <laughs> so he could see you. He could see me. He yes. See I you. just could not see him. Oh, I love that. But I think it was my stock brilliance that dazzled oh, him. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I love that you went to your people and said, you know what? I want to take this next step. I think I'm ready and I want to go, you know, have some appearances rather than waiting for someone to come to you and say, you know, we think you need to do this and you're ready. And we know that that is an area that women really suffer from. Again, it's that chronic kind of guilt that we are maybe not putting in as much face time or that we have, you know, other matters to take care of outside of work. And it's not this laser focus, but we know that from now the evidence shows if a guy has, what is it, 60% of the qualifications for promotion, he'll apply. Nothing wrong with that. Why not? Give it a shot. Whereas if a woman doesn't have 90%, she's fearful to do it. And I think we kind of have to get over ourselves a little bit and really try to have that extra level of confidence and really just try to seize opportunities. Sitting on my nightside table, I haven't started reading it yet, is a new book that a lot of people are talking about, The Confidence Code. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to this exact issue. So tell me, I can see in you that that confidence that really you you you're um, you're educated, you're knowledgeable, and you know that you are. So you don't have fear in speaking about you know the things that you, that you're working in and involved in. But as a young girl, 
Did you have that as well? And if so, how, why do you think that developed early on for you? So I don't think I ever did because, again, I always had a very strong father who never distinguished between my brother and I and what was expected of us. There was always a lot that was expected of us. And it really never crossed my mind. Now, I will take a quick detour and say, I did at some point along my career encounter some negativity surrounding my role as a successful woman. And it was while I was at Delaware. And it was, there were a few unpleasant years there by somebody who was not willing to accept my role as a strong, successful female at the organization. So it's not, and I did speak up and it was, it was not as one would see in the movies that things really get taken care of properly. So I, you know, I'm not going to go into tremendous details, but it, it went so far as somebody when I was not at the office one day because I was out with another analyst doing what's called a mall walk, which in the consumer space is very important to stay on top of trends and see which retailers continue to evolve and where there's a whole lot of markdown merchandise. It's a very important piece of my job. And so somebody walked around and said to my then boss at the time, you know, where's Lori? And he said, she's out doing a mall walk. And this gentleman said, oh, you mean shopping? Mm. And so he was clearly not an enlightened enlightened individual and so i'm not going to say i've never encountered this yeah, I, no it's out there absolutely for sure um <clears throat> it's one of the questions is ironic that you're talking about the mall walk because i wanted to know what your take is on kind of where malls are headed you know i i think you know for the future of retail it's certainly a lot of things have changed because of online shopping it's huge and then just you know a lot of these because of a lot of entrepreneurial women there's pop-up shops and boutiques and all of that and i was recently walking in i never go into the mall i was never a big mall fan and it was empty and i thought are, the, are malls going to shut down across the country what do you think is going to happen it's an interesting time, and especially as a time-pressed working woman, I love the technology of being able to do so much online and just right. have it show up. And if I come home and there's not a package waiting, it's a very unusual day for me. <laughs> it's a sad day. Right. Right. <laughs> but with that said, the strong public retailers have, from the get-go, largely embraced online technology. And they are doing you know, certainly just as well as the online only peers as the stronger ones. So it's not to think that companies like The Gap are going to be going away because of this. Mm -hmm. It does cause them to really think about their right sizing their real estate. So maybe they're not going to need as many brick and mortar stores because some of the better companies that I follow, like Urban Outfitters, which is based here in Philly, which is also Anthropology and Free People, they have about 30% of their business that's migrated to online. And they've always been an early embracer of it. And the founder of the company is a real visionary. And just like he saw the move from department stores to specialty back in the 70s, he you know, declared eight years ago, 50% of his business would be online within the next 10 years. And he's really marching ahead with making sure that they have all the latest and greatest mobile technology and, you know, platform agnostic. You can buy it online, return it to the store, no problem. And then you they will then pull their inventory when you buy online from the store that has the most of that particular item just to keep the inventory, you know, really fluid across the different places. So, a combination of those differentiated lifestyle retailers that have product that 
cannot be Amazon. So a Lululemon, there's nowhere else you can get it, but Lululemon in the store or online. And they've created a really interesting environment. So you'll go in there. They have brand ambassadors that um, really believe in the product that can speak to the differentiation of it. And they have yoga classes at the store. They have running groups that take place from the store. So the onus is really on the retailer to make it a fun, thriving, exciting Mm. environment. Yeah, boy, that's true. You can't just sell product today. You have to be interacting, engaging, and all that good stuff. Um, We're going to take one last quick break, and we'll be back in the studio with Lori Wax, president and founding member of Crossledge Investments. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? 
you haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, Wealth Management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC. Member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Lori Wax, and Lori is president and founding member of Cross Ledge Investments. And uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you just came to mind was, when and how did you make the decision to leave um, uh, working for another company and starting your own firm? I alluded to it a little bit ago when we were talking about a bit of a difficult manager that I was coming up against. But beyond that, it was... You know, we had been through a tough time in the market and following the small cap space, we had a number of really good years and at a big asset gathering firm, the importance then is to just pile on a lot of assets. Whereas following the small cap space, that tends to be a big detractor to performance. So we had a number of years that we underperformed and then we went into the financial crisis. We were on the other side of that in 2009. We had one of our best years ever. We were a Wall Street Journal category king that year. We beat the index by 2,000 basis points. So very strong year. And we were talking to the firm about how can we better market our group? Because the last time we had numbers like this, billions of dollars poured in. And it was at that moment in time that our firm, Delaware, had been put up for sale by Lincoln Financial because Lincoln had taken TARP during the financial crisis, and we were sold to Macquarie. And Macquarie moved in, and they made a number of cost-saving initiatives, and they transferred the assets of my group to a West Coast firm that they had. And we were able to kind of walk out of that conversation and go into another room. We had already been putting together this marketing plan to market our tremendous success over the past few years. And we said, you know what, if we're ever going to try this, now is as great a time as we're going to get. So that was the moving force at that moment in time. Um, One of the questions I had for you is why you think that today um, we're seeing so many firsts with women 
um, in business, professional women. Um, and, and probably some of that has to do with the um, support and the networking groups and the things that are around. But what's your take on it? Why do you think it's happening today? You know, I think these things really take time and they seem glacial until you look back 30 years later. So when I was just doing the college rounds with my daughter and sat in a number of universities who just started accepting women in the 70s, and you just think that it took time to get those graduates out there and in a big enough way that there was some support to make them realize that they could really climb the corporate ladder. It's kind of remarkable. I know I've spoken to a woman in the financial field from a generation prior to mine, and when she went on interviews, they asked her what forms of birth control she was planning on using so she wouldn't get pregnant while she was working there. And this was at one of the big banks. So we really have come quite a way, and I think it's just, it takes time to... Now, if you look at any one of these universities, it's about 50-50 women. Um, At some of the higher levels, it's even got a greater percentage of women. And that just takes time to really work its way out into the workforce in a meaningful way. I know in reading Lean In, one of the quotes that really resonated with me was by Judith Roden, who was the first female president of an Ivy and at my alma mater at Penn. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, my generation worked so hard to give your generation choices opting out of the workforce was not one that we foresaw. And so, you know, we did have these brilliant visionary women who spent many years really trying to pave the way for us. And I think we will fortunately continue to be able to reap the rewards of that. Yeah. What a great point. I think you had, though, about, you know, the 70s was not that long ago. You know, it seems like it to our kids, but the fact that there were universities then that were, um, you know, weren't accepting women. So you're right. It does take it takes years for kind of things to happen and turn around. I was just at um, a benefit recently that Fareed Zakaria was the keynote speaker and he was talking about the Middle East. And he said, you know, people are can't believe how this hasn't really been able to get more traction. But I want you to think back to the American Revolution two years in. Washington wasn't even in place yet. So we have to really keep an eye to make sure that things are moving into the right direction, but you can't expect things to really change in a year or two. It's really measure it 10 years from now. Right, exactly. And I think you have to kind of keep it Keep it positive as well. You know, keep the steps that we're taking, kind of not looking back and, you know, it's not fair and how come we can and as long as you keep it, keep the steps positive, I think it'll it'll happen in an organic way and and in a wonderful way. Absolutely, and just of course we can, and just yeah. kind of have that <laughs> yes, as we can. a few guiding words, and just try to really seize those moments and and forge your own path ahead. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you this: If you were not doing this job, what would you be doing? I'm also pretty interested in the private equity aspect of the consumer space. So as I mentioned, I love finding small companies and watching them grow. Um, The stressful part really kicks in, at least for me, with going through these high growth periods and, and invariably there will be a misstep and having to kind of suffer through in the public marketplace, the stock correcting. And so I kind of think it's neat to be able to 
work with building a company, not with the pressure of delivering to Wall Street on a quarterly basis. So that's kind of something in the back of my mind as well. My kids would nominate me to head into some sort of college counseling. They say that I run a pretty tight, mean ship around the house in terms of (laughs) making sure they stay on their path. And they think that could be a second career for me as well. (laughs) That's so funny. Kids always know what we should be doing, right? Um, If if you had um, advice for some of our listeners, if there's women listening and they're looking to go into the financial industry, what's one of the things, and perhaps you learned this from a mentor or somebody that you've worked with over the years um, as just a piece of advice to keep them on the, the right track. What would that be? Sure. And so different for many people, but I think it's really good to go to one of the larger banks and get involved in a training program early on. I just think you can get tremendous experience and exposure to different aspects of what the financial field means. There are so many different tentacles that kind of reach out from there. So, you know, ideally to start in a program like that. And then beyond that, it is interesting in that it's a field that you can do some self-motivated work, even if you weren't classically trained in it. There are wonderful um, books and courses that can be taken. As we discussed, many people don't take that opportunity. So if you're in a different field, there's a lot that you can do to prove your interest in order to gear up for a career shift or to go on a job interview. And then beyond that, kind of the theme of what we were saying, which is to just do your work, believe in yourself, mm-hmm. and just you know continue to um, try to look for those opportunities that would allow you to progress your career and whether it's doing something a little non-traditional and going into the media, which should help your own personal brand, or whether it's, you know, continually looking for the promotions that can get you into different levels within your within your pocket of finance. Just both really important things. Yeah. It sounds to me like your your dad was a big influence on you. Was there anyone else that you would consider a mentor or somebody throughout your career that you feel um, just always kind of made you feel good and had your back? My first boss at Delaware Investment was a guy named Eddie Antoyan, and he run, he's involved with a different financial organization now. But I will never forget when I went in to tell him that I was pregnant and I had a whole long speech prepared. And, you know, I started off that I am definitely coming back to work. And he just looked at me and said, you know, you're never going to know how you'll feel until you hold that baby in your arms. So there just wasn't that pressure of, you know, I have to prove it to him because he was kind of saying see what happens. And then I went back and I went back full time and I had to prove it to everybody. And after about eight months of full time, something had to give, at least in my life. And I went to him, he said, okay, figure out how you want to scale back your hours. Do you want to cut back a few hours each day? Do you want to work from home a few days? And for him to have given me that flexibility at that critical point in my career was so important. And I think that's where a lot of women's careers come undone because they don't have a mentor at that point in time who's willing to give them flexibility to figure it out during those first few harried years. And I am forever grateful to him for that. Yeah, I love the fact, you know, I feel that I I ask that question frequently. And it seems to me the women that come on this show, more often than not, the mentor, the person who really kind of makes them feel good and has helped them along has been a man. And I think it's so important, you know, when we talk about women helping women and being out there and rooting and all that, um, it's great. But if there's a if there's a man who's saying, I believe in you and I think it's important to have, you know, diversity, that's even more powerful, don't you think? 
Well, I'd like to think again, it's because there are so many more male mentors out there at the moment, but I'd like to think that we can step in and be just as inspiring and encouraging. It's just, it's tough when there aren't as many of us. There now, aren't as so. many. Yeah. I just think as long of along the line, there's, but there's actually been a study um, out that talks about from a business standpoint, why it makes sense to have more women, um, you know, in a company or on a board. And it's that, it's the differences that when you bring them together, you know, you see more success, but they're showing that, you know, the bottom line dollars are the companies that are, um, have more diversity with, at the top tier um, are generating more income. And in really the investment field as well, that women are, have been shown professional investors, women are better investors. They beat men by several hundred basis points, yet only 3% of hedge funds are run by women. So a real imbalance to what the facts would otherwise dictate. Yeah, I, that's real interesting. That could be a whole other show talking about the psychology of that, yeah. you know, how women think differently and men think differently and why, you know, having equal parts is, is a good thing. So um, we just have a, a moment left. If you could give your contact information for anyone who's listening that may want to be in touch with you. Sure. I am Lori at crossledge.com, and that's Lori, L-O-R-I, the right way of spelling Lori, and at cross, C-R-O-S-S-L-E-D-G-E.com. And how about any social media sites that they can interact with you? I have not been active in social media for my professional. Okay. And we didn't even get into to that, but I did want to cover that a little bit about the change. I know it's it's changed all industries, social media has, and um, but... We'll have you back and talk about that another day. Sounds like a date. Thank you so much, Lori. Um, that's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out to my website at womentowatch.net. And that's women, the number two, watch.net. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.